This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the numbers are in and they're pretty impressive. The Department of Health and Human Services announced the numbers of signups during the second open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act, and the numbers far exceed the administration's estimates. During the first open enrollment, about 8 million Americans signed up for coverage through the insurance marketplaces. This year, systems ran much more smoothly than the first year, and the number was way up. 11.7 million Americans signed up for coverage. Over half of those who signed up during the second enrollment were new customers. Also, quite a few Americans who re-enrolled shopped around for new plans that better suited their needs. And there were 25% increase in the number of insurance companies participating. And more insurance companies means more competition for the consumer. Well, we also, um, maybe surprisingly, saw some huge numbers in states like Texas and Florida where those state governments had actively campaigned against the health care law. 1.2 million people signing up on the federal exchange in Florida and another 1.3 million from Texas using the federal exchange. So the federal exchange option seems to have worked. Uh, But still lagging, though, uh, minorities and so-called young invincibles. HHS says they're working hard uh, to target certain uninsured populations, and they've got an extra chance to do that with special enrollment period that goes on from now to the end of April uh, on the federal exchange. And at the same time, it's also important to note the number of Americans who receive some kind of subsidy to pay for their coverage. That's 86 percent. And the average monthly subsidy that Americans receive to purchase insurance is about $240 a month. Polls show that these subsidies are extremely popular with Americans. You're absolutely right, Margaret. Uh, The health care law is increasing access to affordable coverage and access to care as well, helping to reduce health disparities. We have some serious public health challenges to address in this country, and perhaps the most concerning one is the epidemic of childhood obesity. Well, our guest today is someone who is leading the battle against that epidemic on the front lines. Dr. John Lumpkin is the senior vice president at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, overseeing the foundation's quest to eradicate childhood obesity by 2025. That's an ambitious agenda and vital to the future health of the nation. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements. Spoken about health reform in the public domain, but no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at CHC Radio. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Lumpkin from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 93%, the amount of Floridians receiving some kind of tax subsidy under the Affordable Care Act to offset the purchase of insurance. Florida, a state that had fought hard against the health care law, saw the biggest jump in the country in signups during the second round of open enrollment, due largely to marketing efforts from insurers who gained big by all that new business. According to a national poll, 71 percent of Americans are in favor of keeping those tax subsidies in place to offset the cost of purchasing insurance. And now smaller and mid-sized employers are getting in the game, and some of it to the chagrin of employees being forced to purchase insurance selected by their employers and coming out of their paychecks. 
Under the health law, large employers that don't offer their full-time workers comprehensive affordable health insurance face a fine. But some employers are taking a step further, requiring workers to buy the company insurance whether they want it or not. Nothing in the Affordable Care Act directs employers to make their coverage mandatory for employers. The law requires large employers to either offer coverage or pay a fee if their full-time workers access tax credits to get coverage on the marketplace. And in what's become an annual rite of spring, Congress is again haggling over the Medicare reimbursement formula, the so-called doc fix that would once and for all end the fee schedule set in place by Congress in 1997. That reimbursement rate drops 21 percent for docs in just a few weeks unless Congress gets its act together. Last year, a deal to hammer out a permanent solution to fix the problem didn't make it through the session. This year's deal looks to be more of a temporary fix again. And medical expenses are the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country, tarnishing people's credit scores for years. A new measure is being considered that would give patients 180 days to make good on outstanding medical bills or workout payment arrangements, thus protecting their credit scores. The measure doesn't go into effect for a couple of years. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. Uh, we're speaking today with Dr. John Lumpkin, Senior Vice President and Director of Targeted Teens at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the largest foundation in the nation dedicated to improving health and health care. Dr. Lumpkin is responsible for all management aspects of the RWJ Foundation's Childhood Obesity and several other teams. He is an emergency medicine physician, having taught at medical school at Northwestern University and the University of Chicago. Dr. Lumpkin served as the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health for 12 years. He's chairman of the board of directors of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, the major teaching hospital of Rutgers University. Dr. Lumpkin is a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies and a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. He earned his medical degree from Northwestern University and his MPH from Illinois University. Dr. Lumpkin, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I think uh, most Americans know that we are facing uh, an obesity epidemic, but I'm not sure they're aware of all of the implications. And it's especially troubling for the nation's children. 35% of the nation's children are obese or overweight. And there are also disproportionate rates of obesity facing racial and ethnic minority populations. In fact, the epidemic uh, is so alarming that analysts predict this is the first generation that will have a lower life expectancy than their parents. Uh, tell us more about the scope of this public health crisis and uh, the risk factors for obese children today and the toll it's taking on our health care. I started out in medicine uh, many decades ago, and when I was taught, I learned about two types of diabetes, juvenile onset diabetes and adult onset diabetes. And pretty much you saw one in kids right. and you saw the other in adults. Now we talk about type 1 and type 2 diabetes because what used to be adult onset diabetes, we're seeing now kids in their early teens. Hmm. And this is a direct result of this epidemic of childhood obesity. You know, we have seen the rates of obesity over the last 30 years have tripled among adolescents and quadrupled among children 6 to 11 years old. This generation, the one who are the future of our nation, are at risk of being the first generation to live sicker and die younger than their parents. 
Well, Dr. Lumpkin, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, as I think most of our listeners know, is the largest foundation dedicated to improving health and health care in the United States. And you just announced a sizable commitment to a program that began back in 2007 to tackle childhood obesity. Back then, half a billion dollars was committed to stemming the epidemic, and some progress has been made uh, since then, but still so much work to do. Tell us about some of the specific goals that you've established with the Childhood Obesity Program at the foundation and some of the results and the outcomes that you're seeing so far. Well, we started out actually in childhood obesity in 2003 uh, when our new president, Risa Lovisa Mori, joined the foundation. And as we began to work there, we realized that the critical focus at that time was to do a few things. One, we as a nation believed, by and large, that childhood obesity was a problem of individual choice. And we've been able to identify with research that now the public believes that childhood obesity is a problem for all of us in our communities. Mm -hmm. Obesity is purely an imbalance between how much food you bring in and how much you exercise. It's that simple. And if we're going to correct it, we need to change from... When I was growing up, we used to think about you know, young people as being the, those who were involved in getting up and going. Now this generation is sitting down and watching hmm. and eating. We can encourage them to get up. You know, that means that we have to change the way that our environment is where people live. So how we build our communities, how we make available access to fruits and vegetables are some of the critical components. And what we're seeing today is that the rising tide of childhood obesity is slowing down and even stopping. And in places like New York City, Philadelphia, are beginning to see reductions in the rates of childhood obesity. Children are now having access to more healthy schools, meals and school snacks because of some of the federal policies, as well as the fact that schools are adopting healthier school approaches, focusing in on exercise, recess activities, and healthier lunches. And certainly the foundation has committed another half a billion dollars to the childhood obesity program to continue to build on the work that you uh, just outlined. And uh, I understand this uh, new commitment of the foundation is going to really focus in on urban neighborhoods where poverty is a key factor. And so tell us, uh, our listeners, about the new targeted approach to ensure that every American child who enters kindergarten enters in at a healthy weight, and how do you plan to target these specific populations? We're committing a second $500 million between now and 2025, so a total of a billion dollars mm. over generation to correct the problem that we believe has taken over a generation to occur. Mm -hmm. Our priorities now are to move from where we've learned that how to work with school-aged children to recognize that children, actually, the, some of the decisions that are being made either when mothers are pregnant mm -hmm. or early childhood, significantly stack the deck one way or the other. So the first goal is to ensure that all children enter kindergarten at a healthy weight. That we want to make healthy school environment the norm, not the exception across the United States. We will make physical activity a part of the everyday experience for children and youth. And to make healthy foods the affordable, available, and desired choice in all neighborhoods and communities. And so this is a problem for every one of us in this country, whether it be individuals who are physicians, nurses, who are in the caregiving professions. But it's also a problem for businesses, for mm -hmm. churches, for communities, for social leaders, for urban planners. In order to make 
progress, we need to focus our efforts where the biggest challenges. And the biggest challenges are also the communities that tend to be poor. And so we're going to focus our activities there. And then our last priority is to eliminate the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages among children under five years of age. The evidence is clear that mm-hmm. children start using sugary beverages at that age. Their risk for obesity and overweight goes up dramatically. And part of the problem is parents don't really understand what mm-hmm. is healthy and what's not healthy. So we have to help parents understand what puts their children at risk and what's healthy drinks. Well, Dr. Lompkett, uh, you've had some very creative calls for action and made investments in a wide range of programs. Maybe you could highlight some of the programs that you and the foundation have observed to really work, to make a difference. And I know there are many, but share a few examples with us. Share, share some success stories across the policy, activity, nutrition, intervention. Well, I, I think perhaps the, the biggest one is the, you know, the involvement of First Lady Michelle Obama uh, with her Let's Move campaign mm-hmm. and with her influence in changing the rules for school lunches. As of today, about 80% of the schools in the country are now in compliance with those new school rules. They've had to remove the fryers and put in broiling units. Hmm. But the food that is served is lower in fat and higher in proteins, higher in nutrients, higher in vegetables and fruits. Because of these changes, children are actually selecting more fruits and vegetables and consuming more, contrary to some of the rumors that are out there. But we've also seen some significant progress in New York City and Philadelphia, and they're both you know, shining examples of what happens when a whole city decides that they want to get involved. You know, we've seen over the last two or three decades that as schools have had financial challenges, they've cut back on physical education. Mm-hmm. You know, there's clear evidence now that children who are active at recess, who are engaged in physical activity, actually do better in academic performance. Mm-hmm. New York has, has focused in also on the child care setting. They've worked with child care centers to help them understand how to provide healthier foods, how to provide nutrition education, because often if you educate the child, they bring that home. They've looked at ways that child care centers can increase the amount of physical activity and most importantly, limit the amount of screen time. And all of this is very important and we've seen the results that the rates of childhood obesity in both New York and Philadelphia has gone down. Now, Philadelphia has done something that's really particularly special because they've seen, you know, in New York, while it went down, the rates did not go down as much in African-American and Latino communities. And we're doing some studies in Philadelphia to see exactly what they've done, but they did pay special attention uh, to helping increase the availability of fruits and vegetables in communities that prior to this had been food deserts. Definitely they demonstrate that we can begin to solve this problem. We're speaking today with Dr. John Lumpkin, Senior Vice President and Director of Targeted Teams at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the largest foundation in the nation dedicated to improving health and health care. Uh, Dr. Lumpkin is responsible for all management aspects of several teams at RWJ, uh, including the childhood obesity teams. You know, Dr. Lumpkin, there are a couple of takeaways. One is that teamwork is the new employee of every healthcare organization. And the second is really the importance of understanding the science of obesity. Your entire initiative seems to rely heavily on teamwork. And you mentioned the First Lady. Uh, and her great campaign on Let's Move. 
do we have real bipartisan support around the whole effort around the food campaign? Any worries from you in terms of having a broad enough coalition for the science of what has worked so far is so important about the school breakfast and lunch programs, how they're really transforming the national realities for millions of children around the country? You know, I think many of us in in our country and and the polls demonstrate that people are becoming increasingly befuddled by what's going on in Washington. So for us, we try not to get involved in that. (laughs) Because once you get out into the communities and you begin to talk to parents and you talk to businesses, you talk to uh, churches, you talk to schools, they can all understand that what's most important to them are their children and the children of those communities. And when you begin to make the statement out in this country that we're all in this together, people begin to see the, the importance of change. Whether or not it's the First Lady, and certainly she has really championed this issue, but out in the communities begins to be programs like Let's Move. Mm-hmm. And you have organizations that have adopted the Let's Move uh, name as part of their name because they're fully committed mm-hmm. to the goals of getting children moving and getting children to have the opportunity to have healthier school breakfasts and lunches. We believe that partnership is, is a critical component. So we've had some very key partnerships in moving forward. One is one that was started by the First Lady called the Partnership for Healthy America. And we've been a supporter since this was developed as it grew out of the the Let's Move campaign. And this has been a really interesting organization because uh, they just had a meeting two weeks ago. I was there at the meeting, and we had uh, businesses from across the many spectrums. There were daycare centers. There were food growers. Uh, there was just a, a new campaign on fruits and vegetables that was announced by the produce industry to to make it cool for children to eat fruits and vegetables using uh, movie stars like uh, Jessica Alba and others and, and football players and soccer players and even world wrestling uh, <laughs> stars to say how important it is to eat fruits and vegetables and broccoli. We've also worked with the Alliance for Healthier Generation, which is a partnership with the Clinton Foundation. And they have worked with with our support with over 26,000 schools nationwide. And these schools all make commitments to change their policies, to change how food is given, uh, is made available, and to change uh, how exercise and play is available for children. And I've been to some of these schools, and you just can't imagine how much of a change these schools have where the, the principals, the teachers, I was at one just uh, last month, West Side High in, uh, in New York City, where the principal actually leads the spin class. Hmm. And the principal had a big office, and she said, I don't need an office this big. And she converted half of the office hmm. into a kitchen where students can come in and learn how to cook healthy meals. So these kinds of transformations are happening because schools and organizations like the Alliance for Healthier Generation. We're partnering with the American Heart Association in an organization called Voices for Healthy Kids. And this is focused at many of the key components of working in communities and reaching out and building partnerships with WISE and other organizations. Reversing this epidemic of childhood obesity is going to take all the key players in a community. And they recognize, and it's important for them to recognize, as we believe, that we're all in this together. 
for schools, it seems like it ought to be a no-brainer. Healthy children learn better. For businesses, children who are obese are more likely to be obese as adults, to have illnesses. And businesses work better when their employees come in every day. And government leaders, because the cost of care of individuals in our communities is based upon how healthy they are, and obesity is one of the major risks for diabetes, for heart disease, for stroke. So if we can begin at a younger age and bring together all the people who really are committed to this because they are committed to their communities, that's when we begin to see real change happen. Well, it does uh, seem that we have seen a, a sea change uh, in this area over the last decade. And as we uh, talk about uh, partnerships and politics, I'm reminded always that all politics are local. And uh, I, you know, I just have such a clear memory of so many poignant arguments in the General Assembly and so forth. Things like if you take away the vending machines in the schools, you take away the art program and the football team, right? That we had mm-hmm. we had linked these perverse incentives. The vending machines were supporting the activities that hopefully would get kids up and away from the screen and out doing things. That seems to have subsided to a large degree uh, in recent years, at least in, in our local communities. But some of this has really been about a partnership with the food and beverage industry to make a contribution on their part to try and and eliminate or reduce some of these uh, calories from the marketplace. And uh, somebody provided me with a a piece of background information that the foundation uh, had looked at a commitment from the food and beverage industry to remove 1.5 trillion calories from the marketplace and found that companies ultimately, when they focused on this as a goal, removed 6 trillion calories. Tell us about some of these large uh, partnerships with uh, industry, really with the food and beverage industry, which kind of had a lot to lose in a shift to fresh fruits and vegetables and how that has continued to evolve. Certainly. And, you know, I cut my teeth on uh, the campaign against tobacco. And there the tobacco industry was the enemy because if you used a product for its intended purposes, one out of three people would die prematurely. This is different. We will not be able to be successful in, uh, in changing the whole outlook of our country about what's healthy and, and, and getting access to healthy foods without the direct involvement, engagement, and commitment of the food industry. And we're beginning to see some changes. But, you know, as a foundation, we really have not been shy about pressing the industry to, to do things, to do more. But we also believe that we shouldn't hesitate to shine a light on practices that we believe are positive and make a difference. And that's what happened with the Healthy Weight Commitment. They came to us. They said, we want you to be part of our Healthy Weight Commitment. We said, well, not so fast. But what we will do is we will fund an independent evaluation. You say you're going to move 1.5 trillion calories. We're going to follow up and make sure that that happens. And we did fund that evaluation. We found not that they reduced 1.5 trillion, that they reduced, removed 6.4 trillion. And that really was a major important step. It's a first step. But we think it's going to be critical for the food industry to not only realize that it's important for them to change, but it also makes good business sense. And two things have to happen. First is 
the industry needs to actually believe that it can make financial sense. And there's some studies that are starting to come out that show that companies that market better for you and lower calorie products actually do better financially. And you're beginning to see companies like Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's, the big three of, of, of hamburgers, taking sugary beverages off of their children's menu. Those are all positive developments. But the other piece is all of us who buy foods need to have, be better educated, better understand what's healthy and what's not, the, the problems of high sugar, of high salt, of low nutritional value, and we need to demand healthier foods. And when you put those two together, an increased demand for healthier foods, as we're beginning to see in many communities across the country, and the food industry realizing that's where they can make uh, do better financially, then we begin to see a dramatic change. And it requires a different working relationship with the industry than we've had on other issues. We've been speaking today with Dr. John Lumpkin, Senior Vice President and Director of Targeted Teams at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, overseeing the campaign to reduce childhood obesity. You can learn more by following Dr. Lumpkin at Twitter at J.R. Lumpkin or by going to rwjf.org. Dr. Lumpkin, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Vice President Joe Biden recently said that the Affordable Care Act would reduce U.S. debt by, quote, another $1 trillion over the next 10 years. But that's a Democratic estimate for 10 years starting in 2022 or 2023, not the next 10 years. The Congressional Budget Office projects the law would reduce the deficit by $109 billion over the 2013-2022 period, but said beyond that it is very difficult to predict. So where does Biden get the $1 trillion number? The CBO said in 2012 that beyond the following 10 years, the ACA would reduce deficits in the subsequent decade by a broad range around one-half percent of gross domestic product. CBO explained the uncertainty of such a general estimate, saying that it doesn't generally provide estimates beyond the initial 10-year period because it's difficult to project that far into the future. A number of difficult-to-predict changes could occur, and the calculation would have to assume that all provisions of current law won't change over 20 years. In March 2011 testimony to Congress, CBO Director Douglas Elmendorf called the second-decade estimate, quote, a rough outlook. But Democrats still took the one-half percent of GDP estimate and calculated that it would amount to a little more than $1 trillion based on estimates of what GDP would be two decades into the future. To be sure, CBO has long estimated that the Affordable Care Act would reduce yearly deficits, not add to them, once both spending and revenues from the law are taken into account. But in recent years, CBO has stopped giving a hard estimate for even the next 10 years, saying instead only that, quote, the ACA will reduce deficits over the next 10 years and in the subsequent decade. And that's my fact check for this week. 
I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. In the emergency room or the ICU, clinicians are confronted with a myriad of unpredictable medical crises that sometimes uh, can be challenging to diagnose. Most of these clinicians are now communicating with colleagues via their smartphones, often sending images of a patient's unique symptoms or chest x-rays to one another for shared diagnosis. ICU physician Dr. Josh Landy was noticing a growing trend of image sharing via smartphones to crowdsource second opinions from friends and colleagues across the country. But he also was concerned about the potential violation of HIPAA regulations. So he developed an app for that. He created Figure One, a sort of Instagram for doctors in which images can be de-identified but shared across a dedicated social media platform that would allow input from clinicians within their network. Doctors are using the app to communicate not only with colleagues within their hospital settings, but around the world where someone might have superior expertise with a certain condition. The app was recently used to share a chest image of one of the patients who presented with the Mideastern virus MERS. Dr. Landy says the apps get about a half a million image views a day with about 80 million total views so far. He sees the potential for this platform only growing as more young digital natives enter the medical workforce. Figure One is a free download through Apple app stores and Google Play. A free downloadable app offering secure HIPAA-compliant image sharing among clinicians around the world to reduce the time it takes to zero in on a diagnosis by tapping the collective expert instantly. Now that is a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm. 